Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 166. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 51 through 54 and follow with some thoughts about snitching. Psalm 51 begins with a saucy pun that belies a more serious subject matter. The superscription upon Nathan the prophet's coming to him when he had come to bed with Bathsheba plays with the double meaning of the Hebrew verb ba, which works here, as does the double meaning of the verb come in English. This pivotal moment for David, a watershed moment for up until now, David was the golden boy, the anointed of God, the king who could do no wrong. But he was doing wrong. By propositioning and having what I would say was non-consensual sex with Bathsheba, a married woman, and then making sure that her husband was killed in action to cover up this illicit sexual activity, David was well over the line. Over the line? You, you, you're, you're so far past the line that you can't even see the line. The line is a dot to you. But David was called to account, but not by God. He was called to account by the prophet Natan, who, through clever use of parable, rebuked the king, which put the king in a penitential mode that is reflected in this psalm. But it's hard to say whether this psalm dates from the period of King David, as there is a reference to the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, which could only have taken place after 586 BCE, after the Babylonians sacked the city and destroyed the temple and pulled down the walls. In any event, the process described here, the sinner seeking forgiveness and undergoing a process of atonement, would work for anybody who did wrong, not only King David. Step one, awareness. Quote, for my crimes I know, and my offense is before me always. Step two, cleansing. Quote, purify me with a hyssop, that I be clean. Wash me, that I may be whiter than snow. Step three, renewal. Quote, a pure heart create for me, God, and a firm spirit renew within me. Step four, commitment to spread the word that repentance works. Quote, let me teach transgressors your ways and offenders will come back to you. And finally, step five. Channing, trust the process in a nod to Sam Hinkie. In this context, trust the process means something more than making the NBA playoffs after three years of terrible and rebuilding. It refers to real behavioral change and a rejection of near offering without anything behind it. Quote, God sacrifices a broken spirit, a broken crushed heart God spurns not. Except that God doesn't totally reject sacrifices for all time. Quote, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, then shall you desire just sacrifices. Psalm 51 continues with the David deep cuts, this time a maskil for David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Shaul that David came to the house of Ahimelech. The poet is referring to an incident in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 where Ahimelech was the priest in charge of the monastery in Nov, and David was on the run from Shaul. Ahimelech granted David refuge. When Doeg reports this to Shaul, Shaul and his men arrive in Nov, chastise Achimelech for aiding and abetting David, and then Shaul has all the priests killed. Even though snitches should get stitches or end up in ditches, Doeg did not lie about what he saw, so the connection to the rest of the psalm, which focuses on deceit, is a bit tenuous. 
But the message about wickedness and the arbitrary use of power still rings true. The villain described in verses 3 through 6, who retells in his evil acts and wickedness, quote, disasters your tongue devises like a well-honed razor doing deceit. Well, he'll get his. Quote, God surely will smash you forever, sweep you up and tear you from the tent, root you out from the land of the living. And the righteous will be witness to this uprooting, and I guess, laugh last? Yeah. Yeah. Psalm 53 is an almost shot-for-shot remake of Psalm 14, with some subtle differences. This book two remake substitutes God, Elohim, for the tetragrammaton used in Psalm 14. There are some slight differences in language. For example, in verse 2, the poet decries the, quote, loathsome acts, alilah, where Psalm 14 uses avel to describe the same thing. Or verse 4, where the poet says, quote, all are tainted, kulo sag, where Psalm 14 says, kulo sar. All turn astray. I I, I could go on. The message on both Psalms is the same. The wicked act as if there is no God and do wicked things, but there is a God and God sees all. And though the wicked might prevail now, in the future, God will reward the righteous and punish the bad people. Psalm 54 is short and bitter, seeking rescue and salvation from persecution. Again, a deep cut into David's biography, 1 Samuel chapter 23, when David, still on the run from Shaul, hides amongst the Ziphites, and the Ziphites denounce him to his pursuer, quote, God, oh, hear my prayer, hearken to my mouth's utterances, for strangers have risen against me, and oppressors have sought my life. Through the power of prayer, David rises from desperation to hope, quote, look, God is about to help me, my master, among those who support me. This pivot is almost instantaneous, but one wonders when the poet penned this psalm, during the desperate moment filled with con- confidence and faith that the rescuer will come, during the rescue itself when the much-hoped-for moment happens, or during the post-rescue relief and the giving of thanks. On that exhilarating note, here endeth the lesson. In episode 16 which dropped in August of 2013, I looked at the prisoner's dilemma in the context of Moshe confronting Pharaoh in their tit-for-tat strategy. So let it be written. So let it be done. Just as a reminder, here's how the prisoner's dilemma was formally presented in 1950 by Albert W. Tucker, a Canadian mathematician. Quote, two members of a criminal gang are arrested and imprisoned. Each prisoner is in solitary confinement with no means of speaking to or exchanging messages with the other. The police admit they don't have enough evidence to convict the pair on the principal charge. They plan to sentence both to a year in prison for a lesser charge. Simultaneously, the police offer each prisoner a Faustian bargain. If he testifies against his partner... He will go free, while the partner will get three years in prison on the main charge. Oh yes, there is a catch. If both prisoners testify against each other, both will be sentenced to two years in jail. So if it's you and your partner in crime, the best outcome you can get is zero, that is no prison time, but only if you snitch. If you're driven by self-interest, you won't hesitate to betray your fellow criminal as quickly as possible, but you must be first. Now, if your partner thinks the same thing and snitches on you before you snitch on them, or you snitch simultaneously, you both end up 
with two years in prison. So what's the conclusion here? Don't snitch. Snitching leads to a worse outcome for both. Take that in. Personal gain and self-interest lead to a less ideal outcome than mutual benefit. But aren't we supposed to snitch? The government wants us to say something if we see something. School principals and teachers want us to snitch on our classmates when they cheat. Anyone in authority encourages the habit in the people they have power over. It's how they keep the system running more efficiently, by outsourcing the policing to us, so we do the work of catching rule breakers for them. But know this, you have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. But before we get into the social critique, let's look at how snitching works. Snitching is designed to get someone else in trouble, and in snitching, you often avoid getting yourself in trouble. Case in point, the prisoner's dilemma. So, the folks who say, Snitches and ditches. They value silence and non-compliance with the authorities. We usually assign this value to criminal circles. But it could easily apply to citizens trying to resist repressive regimes, like those that compel citizens to report on their friends, neighbors, or family members, like Nazi Germany, post-war East Germany, the Soviet Union, Saddam's Iraq, China, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, the list goes on. Now, snitches get stitches can be perceived as a moral imperative, but it's actually a threat. Enforcing what can now be argued is a moral imperative. Not snitching is good, associated with integrity and moral uprightness. Snitching is bad, a cardinal offense. Snitching, that is, reporting deviant behavior, is in itself deviant behavior. No matter what one snitches about, the act of snitching is considered worse than what the other person did. Allegedly. Snitches are reprehensible, terrible people. If we come from a specific social milieu which frowns upon snitching, snitches are coded as revolting and disgusting, almost as viscerally gross as durian or a dirty baby diaper slow roasting in a hot car all day. Snitches evoke moral disgust and contempt. Snitches cannot be trusted, which means that their place in the social order is now in question. Our social order, not the social order of the authority who cultivates snitching, it's us, not them. Snitches have no place among us. They should be avoided, and if possible, punished. Hence, the rhyming threat. In the face of such tremendous social cost and or potential physical harm, it makes sense that people generally don't snitch, even when they can benefit from snitching and no one will potentially know about it. So why do people snitch? Well, snitching is often done not for gain, but to avoid pain. Take the example of the House Un-American Activities Committee, a committee of the U.S. House of Representatives that investigated allegations of communist activity in the United States during the early years of the Cold War. We're talking about the 1940s and 1950s. The committee weaponized their subpoena power and brought in citizens to testify in high-profile hearings. An individual who found themselves in the committee's radar received a subpoena to appear before the committee, and during the hearing, the suspected communist was grilled about their political beliefs and activities, and then they were asked to provide the names of other people who had taken part in subversive activities. Allegedly. In other words, they were goaded into snitching on their friends, who would then be brought in and subjected to a similar grilling and goading and potential snitching. 
If they refused to answer the committee's questions or to snitch on their friends, they were indicted for contempt of Congress and thrown into prison. Now, you could plead the fifth, invoking the right to avoid self-incrimination, but that would give the impression that you were guilty and had something to hide. But know this, you have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. Which would get your employer thinking that they had a communist in their midst, in which case it often resulted in you being fired and blacklisted from your chosen profession. So the cost of not snitching here is very high. So what's the deal with Doeg the Edomite? What was the dilemma that he had to deal with? So let's go back to 1 Samuel. Chapter 20, Yonatan, son of the king, realizes that his father, Shaul, thinks David is a traitor and usurper and plans to have David killed as soon as humanly possible. Thus, Yonatan encourages David to escape, which David does in the beginning of chapter 21. And as we said before, David's first stop is the monastery at Nov, where Achimelech serves as abbot. David tells Achimelech that he's there alone because he's on a special secret mission on behalf of the king, and he asks for some food. The only food Achimelech has is consecrated bread, but David assures the priest that he and the men in his, in his group are pure and they can eat consecrated bread no problem. While they converse, Doeg the Edomite, whom the text describes as one of Saul's officials and chief herdsmen, was there, quote, detained before the Lord. What that means is unclear. Some medieval commentators, they argue that Doeg was there to study Torah. <laughs> So Doeg hears the whole exchange, as well as David's request for a weapon, after which David runs off into the wilderness. Shaul, meanwhile, organizes a pursuit, but neither he nor his courtiers have a clue where David is. Shaul berates his inner circle, warning them that if, more like threatening them, that if David takes Shaul's place, he will dispossess them all of their cushy jobs and their state-issued fields and vineyards. And as he grows more and more agitated and enraged, now he's accusing the inner circle of conspiring with David against him, at, this, at which point Doeg speaks up. He reports that he saw David with Achimelech in Nov. At this moment, did Doeg snitch? because he was trying to avoid pain or for personal gain. One could say that he snitched because he was afraid that Shaul was going to work himself up even more and start throwing spears at people. But considering that he was Shaul's chief herdsman and not his chief of staff, he would probably, you know, get impaled by, you know, the fifth or sixth spear, you know, long after Avner or Amasa, his aide-de-camp. So, yes, he was probably a little worried, but, you know, afraid for his life? Hmm, doubtful. In this situation, the snitch would be compelled to decide between loyalty to the king and loyalty to this, you know, usurper that the people like. Doeg had to decide between being consigned to the king's kill list right now or potentially the people's at some future date. He chose the latter and snitched. Truthfully, it wasn't that hard of a choice. Doeg is identified as an Edomite. He's not even an Israelite, despite what the commentators say. So alienating the Israelites was something that might worry him. But then again, meh. Social cost for snitching on an Israelite is very low. The threat of violence from them even lower. So when the king and his men head to Nov and Shaul confronts Achimelech, the priest is dumbfounded at the accusation of treason against David, which doesn't pacify the king at all. Shaul condemns Achimelech and all his father's house to death, as well as all the priests in the monastery. 
Shaul's men are petrified. They wouldn't dare kill a priest in a monastery, at which point Shaul turns to Doeg and commands him to carry out the order, which Doeg does. Remember, though he's in the king's inner court, he is an Edomite. First, Samuel tells us that Doeg the Edomite killed 85 people that day, men, women, children, infants. He even killed the oxen, the asses, and the sheep. Only one survived, Eviatar, who ran into the night and eventually found David and told him what happened in Nov. David's reply, I knew it when I saw Doeg that, there would be, that he would snitch. What happened to your father's house is my fault. Now, we don't know what happened to Doeg after this incident. According to the rabbis of the Talmud, Doeg didn't make it to age 35. In Tractate Sanhedrin, they cite a verse from Psalms 55, quote, bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. So Doeg died at 34, which is less than half the typical lifespan of 70. But did he get what he deserved? Did he get stitches and end up in ditches? Well, Psalm 52 has an answer, quote, God surely will smash you forever, sweep you up and tear you from the tent, root you out from the land of the living. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty big ditch to me, and well deserved. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 167, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 55 through 58.